This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I am your teacher, Jeremy Myers. This episode of the One Verse Podcast is a summary of Genesis chapter 2. If you've listened to all the other episodes on Genesis 2 up to this point, then uh, this episode is sort of just a reminder of what we have seen so far. And the reason I'm doing this summary, though, is because there's lots of people who have just started listening to the One Verse Podcast, and maybe they don't have time, or they're trying to work their way through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and there's just a lot of episodes up to this point. Uh, This sort of gets you caught up to speed. You can go and listen to all the previous episodes if you want, if you've missed them all, but this is sort of a summary of what we've seen up to this point. And it's important to listen to these because you sort of need the foundation for what we're going to be seeing in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4 going on. I also recommend if you missed Genesis chapter 1, go back and listen to the summary episode of Genesis 1. It is episode number 25, and it's titled, The Redemption of Religion. Uh, Today's summary on Genesis chapter 2 is titled, The Foundation of Relationships. And if you're interested in some of the things we talk about in today's episode of the One Verse Podcast, I highly recommend that you subscribe to the Theology.fm podcast as well. Uh, The day that this episode, episode number 36 of the One Verse Podcast, gets published, I am also publishing an episode at Theology.fm on the topic of sex. What about sex is the name of that podcast. It uh, is a discussion between Darren Hufford and Hans Funk on how Christians, why Christians should be more open and honest and willing to discuss sex in our families, in our relationships, among our friendships, and even in church and religious settings. So uh, that will be something that will be interesting for you to talk about. We'll be sort of mentioning that a little bit in today's episode of the One Verse Podcast. And then in two weeks at Theology.fm, I publish an interview I recently had with Adam Erickson of the Raven Foundation on mimetic theory. You've been hearing that term sort of tossed around recently. I've written about it in my book, Uh, The Atonement of God. I'm also going to sort of mention it briefly in today's episode of the One Verse Podcast. And it's sort of what the Raven Foundation is all about and what Adam has uh, sort of devoted his life to, teaching and explaining mimetic theory to other people and why it is so important for understanding Scripture, understanding God, understanding the uh, politics, understanding culture, society, religion, uh, even ourselves and our families and and how we interact with our neighbors. And I I completely agree. Mimetic theory has changed my life. In fact, the atonement of God, if you have a copy of that book, you'll notice in the dedication page that I dedicated it to René Girard, who was sort of the pioneer of mimetic theory. So uh, make sure you subscribe to the Theology.fm podcast and then listen to the discussion by Darren and Hans and that interview that I have with Adam Erickson here that will get published in two weeks. So... As we seek to sort of summarize Genesis 2 today, basically there were five main ideas from Genesis chapter 2 that were talked about in previous episodes of the One Verse podcast. And I want to remind you of those now as as we look through this chapter. Uh, Before we look at them, though, 
I do want to point out that when I talk about Genesis 2, really I'm talking about verses 4 and following. Genesis 2, 4 and following. The first creation account in Genesis 1, the seven days of creation, it actually ends in Genesis 2, verse 3. And then the second creation account of Genesis 2 uh, begins with verse 4. So when I when I refer to Genesis chapter 2, I'm not really including the first three verses there, but I'm starting with verse 4 and then going through verse 25. So, um, And in fact, that's sort of the first idea taught in Genesis 2. Uh, and it's this idea about the two creation accounts. Why are there two creation accounts? One in Genesis 1 and then one in Genesis 2. And specifically, why are there differences? That's the thing I want to focus on most. Lots of people sort of tend to think that, um, you know, they try to take Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and come up with ways that these differences can be reconciled. Uh, And frankly, all of the explanations, all of the attempts I have heard to reconcile the differences between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, well, I find them extremely unconvincing. Uh, And yes, I have read and studied, listened to the explanations from Answers in Genesis and the Institute for Creation Research, several commentaries, books on the topic. So I'm not ignorant of the arguments. I just find them completely unconvincing. And the reason is because all of these attempts to reconcile the differences between Genesis 1 and 2, what they really do is uh, they they make two basic mistakes, really. First, they don't allow the text to be read in a straightforward manner. It, it takes a lot of convoluted explanations and hermeneutical gymnastics to get Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to agree with one, with one another, with each other. As an example, Genesis 1 says that the order of creation was the land, obviously sun, moon, and the lights, you know, first and so on. But, but we have, when we get to the earth, we have the land, then the plants, then the animals, And then the male and the female together. But Genesis 2 says that the order of creation was the land, then the male. (laughs) And then, after the male, the plants are created, and then the animals, and then the female last. And, And I could go into a long explanation of how some people tried to get these texts to agree with each other, but I did that in a previous episode. Uh, as well as in the comment section afterwards. So if you want to go learn more, you can just go listen to the episode. The most straightforward reading of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 shows that there are irreconcilable differences between these two accounts. Notice that as I was discussing the differences there, I, I, I never referred to them as contradictions. And that would be part of the problem in discussing Genesis 1 and 2. A lot of people think that because there are differences, well, they must be contradictions. But I don't think they're contradictions. I don't think they're errors at all. I believe the Scripture is inerrant. Now, so so why are they, if, if there are differences, why are they not errors? Why are they not contradictions? And this is the second basic mistake that people make when they try to reconcile the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 accounts. The second mistake is that they fail to read Genesis 1 and 2 within their historical, uh, cultural, literary contexts. Genesis 1, as I tried to show as we went through Genesis 1, is a poetic, theological polemic against the religions of Moses' day. It takes the religions of their day and then point by point shows how God is better, superior, more powerful, 
uh, we should worship God instead of the other gods, okay? It's not a scientific treatise on how the world came to be. And if we try to read Genesis 1 as a scientific treatise, when it's really a theological, uh, poetic polemic, then that's like trying to read Genesis, or trying to read like uh, Shakespeare, maybe, or, or some, some poet like Robert Frost as science. And, and they're not science. You're not going to go to Shakespeare or Robert Frost uh, t- to learn science. Now, maybe they include some science, but that's not the point at all. Anyway, it's the same way what happens when you try to read Genesis 1 as science. It's not science. It's poetry. It's theology. It's a polemic. And uh, trying to read it as science really only leads you astray and causes you to misunderstand the real truths of the text. And similarly then with Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is not poetry. It's still theologically, but it's not poetry anymore. Genesis 2.4 begins with the word toledot, generations, as it's often translated in our English texts. And that indicates that it is closer to actual history. Um, and we'll see in the second key idea, Genesis 2 is also full of rich religious symbolism, just like Genesis 1 was. But it's not as poetic or even as polemical as Genesis 1 is. So basically what this means is that trying to compare Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, poetry with history, is a little bit like, in fact, in one of the episodes I mentioned this uh, painting of George Washington crossing the Delaware River. And you might know, obviously, that's a historical event. But the painting has a lot of inaccuracies. And there are reasons for the inaccuracies in the painting that didn't actually exist in the historical event. But that doesn't mean the painting is in error. You have to note the inaccuracies, the differences between the actual historical event and what we find in the painting, because that's how the meaning and rich symbolism of the painting actually comes to life, comes to light even. Anyway, that's how to proceed with understanding Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Note the differences, and that is where the real truths of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are found. Anyway, uh, that's the first thing. I spent way too much time on that. So let's try to go through the next four key ideas, key truths from Genesis 2 a little bit quicker. Uh, the, The second one is that Genesis 2 is a temple text. This is more of the context, the literary cultural context that is important to recognize from Genesis chapter 2. It's a temple text. Uh, Ancient civilizations and cultures always surrounded the construction of a new temple with various ceremonies, celebrations, and things like that. Uh, And one of these things was a description, usually some sort of literature or story or poem or something, about what was going on in heaven and on earth and how in the temple heaven and earth were becoming one. Heaven had come down to earth in the form of the temple, in the location of the temple. And what is most striking about Genesis chapter 2 is how how it closely resembles some of these ancient temple texts. Uh, For example, the forming of man in Genesis 2-7 and the description of the garden with all of the lush plants and trees and the four rivers and all of that in in Genesis 2, 8-14 is full of allusions and parallels to the temple texts in Moses' day. And we miss it because we don't have temple texts today so much. But back then they did, and the people who had first read this account, they would have easily and immediately recognized Genesis 2 as a temple text. 
it, they would have seen that the 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 make when God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, the man from the dust of the ground breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This was God forming a statue of Himself. The four rivers and the trees and all that would have been easily, quickly understood as 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 a description of the heavenly places that God lived. And then, of course, God takes the statue that He formed in two seven and places him in the garden, which is the temple of God. And then in verses 16 and 17, God commands the man by what he should do and should not do in the garden. Anyway, all of this would have reminded the people of the temple inauguration ceremonies that took place in their day when when various groups built new temples and, and then opened them up for business. So Genesis 2 is a temple text, and it has all of the required elements. It has God, of course. It has God's land. It has God's statue, that's 2-7. It has the temple, 2-8-14. The priesthood, of course, which is also man because he's a living being in, in, in the garden. And then it has the law. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And all of that is found in, in Genesis 2, 4-17. So that's the second main idea to recognize from Genesis chapter 2. This is a temple text and it must be read as a temple text. Now, uh, that command that sort of the, the temple portion of it ends with, do, you know, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, brings us to the third key truth of Genesis chapter 2. And it's this idea of what is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's Really, there's two trees here, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of life sort of takes a back seat, a minor role. It is mentioned, but uh, I mentioned in podcast episodes, the tree of life is the way that Adam and Eve, the humans, were allowed to overcome death that had been built into creation. That's a challenging idea for you. Go back and listen to some of the podcast episodes on that. But um, that's what the tree of life was for. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, though, is the focus of Genesis chapter 2 and then going forward, especially into Genesis chapter 3. And what is it? It's it's the one, it's the tree that is concerned that the text itself is concerned with here. And uh, if you recall, the way I explained this was, in, in Genesis, we have seen God performing seven main activities. They were creating, caring, communicating, seeing, separating, redeeming, and ruling. And there's other synonyms that can be used for those ways. But what we also see in the text is God inviting humans to imitate him in all of these ways, to take these these activities that God was doing, and they, as the image of God on earth, are to then do them as well, as the statues of God, the priesthood of God, in the temple of God, on the land of God, okay? So, so uh, that's what God called the humans to do, to imitate him in these seven activities. But the thing is, is there is, what's then the difference between God and man? Well, that's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, There was one main activity that God reserved for himself, and it is represented by the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it represents God's ability to decide between good and what is not good. Um, And God reserves this for himself. We'll talk about this more when we get into Genesis chapter 3, but God reserves this ability, this activity, for himself alone, because to rightly know the difference between right and wrong requires you to have all knowledge, to be omniscient, 
to know absolutely everything about everything. And so, because God alone has this knowledge, he alone is able to decide, to judge between right and wrong, between what is good and not good. So, deciding between right and wrong is God's prerogative alone. And our job, then, is just to trust him in what he says. And we see this, we know that this is what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is for, because right after God tells Adam, the man, not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he then turns around, God does, and he makes a declaration. In in Genesis 2.18, God says it is not good for man to be alone. So far up to this point in the Genesis creation count, especially in light of Genesis 1, everything is good, 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 good. And then at the very end, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And here, notice before sin enters the world or anything like that, God sees that it, it says that it is not good for man to be alone. All right, so so that sort of shows us that it is. This is something God does. He gets to decide what is good and what is not good. And He says to Adam, "Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This knowledge, this ability to decide, to discern, to judge between good and not good, between good and evil, that's for me alone. And you just trust what I say." So uh, that's the third truth from Genesis chapter 2, and it leads straight into the fourth truth, which uh, I I told you was a revolutionary truth from Genesis. There are several of these, and this was the first one. The first revolutionary truth from Genesis chapter 2 is the the fourth key idea I want to share with you today, and it's this, that humans are made for relationships. (laughs) And I know that doesn't sound like that much of a revolutionary truth. But it really is, especially when we consider how it is presented in Genesis chapter 2, all right? So, again, just like I just said, God gets to decide what is right and what is, or what is good and what is not good, between good and evil, right and wrong, okay? And he immediately, after he tells Adam, don't eat from that tree, God makes a decision between what is good and not, is not good, and he says it's not good for man to be alone. And if you remember when we looked at Genesis 2.18, we saw that the radical and revolutionary idea that God presents here is that God says he is not enough for us humans. (laughs) And this is so revolutionary, so shocking, because religion tells us the opposite. We have set, religion often sets itself up in the place of God to decide between right and wrong, good and not good, And religion tells us, let God be enough for you. God needs to be enough. You have problems, turn to God. Go to God. Be with God. Spend time with God. God is all you need. God is enough. And God himself does not agree. God himself says that he is not enough. According to religion, God is enough, should be enough. But according to God, God is not enough. I saw a blog post this past week from a woman who was challenging and inviting other women to join her in not dating anyone for an entire year. Instead, they were going to date God. (laughs) She, She talked about how they were to go on dates with God for an entire year. And this meant that for a couple hours every night, They were supposed to sit in a room with their Bibles on their lap and pray and listen to worship music and just 
let God's love wash over them or something like that, okay? Now, look, worshiping God, reading, studying Scripture, prayer, it's all very important. Okay, So I'm not downing that at all. But I think God looks at this sort of activity and says, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I'm going to be a pretty boring date. <laughs> you need human relationships. God says, I am not enough for you. You know, some people, they might get the tingles and the chills and the goosebumps and all that while they're sitting alone in a room with God. But most people, if they're honest with themselves, they just don't. And why is that? It's because, as God himself says, God is not enough. Uh, he says in the text, what we really need is human relationships. Uh, when we let God decide what is good and what is not, in fact, look here in the garden, we have God and a human, and the human is all alone with God, and there is no sin, and, and it just looks like the perfect relationship, and God looks at that, and says, look, it's just me and a man, and it's not good. This is not good, God says. So, uh, moving forward then, God sets out to correct this situation, that this man is alone with God, that it is not good to be just God and man together. And what, what God does is he really does three things. First, he creates animals. Animal companions are, are good. They're not, they're not the solution. Okay. Then there's work. God gives work to the man to do. And then, of course, ultimately, finally, the, the thing that really fills, fills the void is that God provides a woman for another human relationship for the man. And uh, we saw at various times as we looked through these verses that sexual relationships are part of what God created. And um, so even sexual relationships between the man and the woman were encouraged and celebrated. So here again, it, it's another place where religion says one thing and God says another. Religion often says, you know, sex is taboo, shameful, bad. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it. You know, it's necessary for procreation to make kids, but but it's a necessary evil. You know, I don't know if we say that exactly that way anymore. They did for hundreds of years, but that's what religion says. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it. God says, no, sex is good. Let me decide what is good and not good. And sex is good. I made it to be enjoyed and celebrated. Sex is not shameful. Sex is all over Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. It's the first command of God to humans. At the end of Genesis 2, at verse 25 there, we basically read that we don't need to be naked and afraid. We don't need to be naked and ashamed. God, he decides what is good, and he says that the sexual relationship between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife, is not bad and is not shameful. And if that's what God says, then who are we to say something different? Anyway, that's all the fourth truth, and it's the first revolutionary idea from Genesis chapter 2, that humans are made for relationships, human relationships. And this leads to the fifth and final truth from Genesis chapter 2. The main thing I want, the five key ideas I want you to notice as we move forward and it's also, this fifth and final truth, this fifth and final key idea is the second revolutionary idea from Genesis 2. The first one was that humans are made for relationship. The second revolutionary idea is that humans are made to imitate. This is the last thing from Genesis 2. Second revolutionary idea 
uh, humans are made to imitate. I mentioned this earlier. I don't know if you caught it. When I mentioned those seven key activities of God that God called humans to imitate him in, and uh, the fact that God does something, does an activity, and then tells the man to go and do the same thing shows that we are made to imitate. And then what God does is he creates a woman to live in relationship with the man and then basically instructs the woman to imitate the man in the man's task of imitating God. So the woman learns to be fully human, not by imitating God, but by imitating another human. Right? So, and I'm not saying anything there about about women in general. This is just the pattern for all humans, male or female, adults or children, that, that God set up. Right? So, so humans are made to live in relationships, and humans were made to imitate one another within these relationships. And again, sort of like that first revolutionary idea, humans are made for relationships. You know, everybody, humans are made to imitate. Well, duh, we all know that. You know, we all grow up imitating our parents, learning to walk and talk and how to behave. And we go to school and we learn how to imitate others by watching. And, you know, we, we understand that some bad things come from this, peer pressure and all of that. All right. But, but the thing is, is imitation, it's like the rabbit hole. It goes deeper than we ever imagined. And what we're going to see as we get into Genesis 3 is that Moses really begins to focus in on this idea of imitation. And we're going to see that although imitation is good, although we were created to imitate, there is a dark side to imitation. We're going to see that imitation is good as long as we imitate the right model for the right things. When we imitate the wrong model or we overstep the boundaries of imitation, that is when imitation becomes bad. So uh, what we'll see as we work our way through Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, really a foundational idea for all of life, understanding Scripture, for everything, culture, politics, religion, wars, family, you know, neighborhood interactions, all these things, we're going to see imitation is behind it all. Imitation is the source of all, not just learning and good things and beautiful things in life, but also the source of violence and sin and human struggle. And we'll begin to see that immediately in Genesis chapter 3, when the woman is encountered with the desire to imitate God in the one area which God said, do not imitate me in, the area of judging between good and evil, between right and wrong, what is good and not good. So that's what we'll see more of when we look at Genesis, begin to look at Genesis chapter 3 next week. So what have we learned from Genesis 2? First, Don't worry about the differences between Genesis 1 and 2. Instead, focus on the differences. Don't try to smooth them over, cover them up, explain them away. It's in the differences that the real jewels of the text are to be found. Second, Genesis 2 is a temple text. It provides great insight on the role and purpose of humanity within the world. Third, the two trees, and specifically tree of knowledge of good and evil. They are there to provide... uh, boundaries between us and God. God alone gets to determine what is good and not good. And he does this in two ways. First, by declaring humans need human relationships. According to God, God is not enough. God made humans to exist in relationships. And then secondly, finally, God made us to imitate. 
Imitate is the key to life, to learning, to culture, to religion, pretty much every single area of life. If you want to learn a little bit more about these things, sort of as I indicated at the beginning of today's podcast episode, especially this idea of relationships and sex, being open and honest about sexual issues in our families, in our marriages, and in, 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 among our friends, uh, or, and especially about this idea of imitation. You want to learn a little bit more about that. I invite you to subscribe to the Theology.fm podcast. We got this uh, discussion already published right now. By the time you're listening to this from Theology.fm, this discussion about sex between Darren and Hans. And here in two weeks, later May, we will have this interview I did with Adam Erickson from the Raven Foundation. And uh, we'll discuss imitation, mimetic desire uh, as the key to, uh, well, pretty much everything. So go to Theology.fm, subscribe there, go to iTunes, search for Theology.fm, and I will see you there in these discussions. And I will see you next week here on the One Verse Podcast as we pick back up with Genesis 3, verse 1. See you then.